The registrar's office knows so much about every single student and other offices on campus. So it's so important for other offices to realize that and know how helpful our registrar could be, again, depending on the structure of the institution. Uh, because if you have a question about a student or a group of students or the last 50 years worth of data <laughs> about what has happened in a particular professor's class, that's where you're gonna go to get that information. And so um, for other offices to understand that they can be a resource beyond just saying no to academic exceptions. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs>
I would share that with everybody. Because I think, Matt, as you and I are talking about identifying values, iconic practices, right, core things, so often I think a president gets confused when they step away from their historical um, story or when they're like, hey, we want to be better in the rankings. They then sometimes can't figure out what they do value. So what right? ends up happening is they move into this murky middle. Yeah. So they're tr- they're they're neither what they were nor what they aspire to be because they don't they don't have what it takes to get there and they move into this murky middle where they lose everything. It's funny as we were talking last week about glue and grease that when you like give up the glue because we're not going to be what we were historically, right? We're not going to have this heritage and this long storyline, but then also we don't really know how to move forward because we're just trying to be like everyone else. Tricky. Also great uh, input in that article from our friends at Credo. So Bill Farner, Bill Farner, the president of Credo. Okay. This next one is about feeding neighbors, nourishing minds. And I picked it because, so you and I have talked for two years now about students in in food insecurities, kind of what that's like. This article is about the temple Beth Elohim, which is feeding their um, mass Bay community college students. So this is a college that's like three miles away from this temple they started a program where they were helping with food insecurity in the in the community and they started talking to their community college and they're like hey we have a lot of trouble with students who are having food insecurity so they started cooking for them at this community college 52 percent of the student body is food insecure um 82 percent of the students work full-time half receive financial aid 35 percent are first generation and almost half are responsible for caring for family members so this temple was like hey if we can feed them and help them feed their family it alleviates some of the stress from them which i really love the reason i picked this though is because they you guys i'm i'm always talking about our student success funnel identify connect solve measure right so this group, as they have decided to solve a food insecurity problem, they followed our funnel perfectly because they identified the students who need to, but this is what they did that's really remarkable. It says, the meals are intentionally designed to be healthy and volunteers want them to look appetizing. Presentation is so important because we want people to feel valued and respected. They're not just opening a box of mac and cheese. They're getting restaurant quality meals, which makes the difference. Nobody wants to feel like they're getting somebody's secondhand food. Bloomberg noted that the form students fill out to receive the meal asks them about their favorite foods, which then the synagogue volunteers consider when they're planning menus. So past meals have included vegetable lasagna and pulled chicken with black beans over brown rice and cornbread. They don't just want to feed students. They really want to connect with our students and help them enjoy their food and look forward to it. So I love that idea of like, are we solving a problem of food? Because then we can just get them the food. Like it doesn't matter what it is versus like, no, what do you love to eat? What does your family love? What, you know, what foods do you eat at home? How can we make sure that you feel seen? We're on your team. And also we want to solve this problem of food. So I love it. Makes me very happy. It's great. Okay. Another great article. We've talked a lot about mental health, so I'm not going to go over this article kind of ad nauseum, but it's called how colleges can um, provide strong mental health in five steps. And it just goes through and says, in first year orientation, you have to talk about mental health. So you have to talk about how do you relieve stress? um, What are healthy ways uh, when you're feeling overwhelmed? Why are emotions so important? How can we address those things? Um, Also having really good counselor coverage to make sure that you have counselors from lots of different backgrounds um, and different experiences. And then they talk in there too about long COVID. So like brain fog and feeling overwhelmed and and some of the physical things that come out of, you know, students who've had, yeah, students who've had COVID making sure that you're addressing all of those. So I would encourage you guys to read that one. Um, Okay. This article about student financial wellness, which I, we serve a school, I can't remember which one it is, that, that just instated a financial wellness counselor instead of financial aid, which I think is a genius way to look at that. Great wording. Yeah. There's an article in, uh, inside higher ed that is talking about where the weaknesses are for student financial needs. Um, it goes through kind of all of the different pieces of like credit card and um, automobile and then loans and how they understand. It talks about the number of students, which is ridiculously small, 
who know how much their college education is going to cost them, how many loans they're taking out, and what the approximate monthly repayment is. So really helpful to kind of walk through. It's almost like a workbook where you can kind of see like these are the things we should be addressing. One thing that they said that I really loved was this idea that individual students have different tolerance levels of debt. So um, this uh, manager or financial aid person was talking to a student with a quarter million dollars in debt, but she wasn't losing any sleep about it. She's like, it's fine. I can get out of this. Like, no problem. Okay. The next student, the same day arrived and shared through tears, she might have to withdraw. Her parent had given her a credit card for emergencies and guess who made the choice to become the most popular person on her floor. Handing her some tissues, the counselor asked how bad it was. Bad, she said. Five. 5,000, the counselor said. And she said, no, that's crazy. 500. Such a good example, right? Of like different levels of tolerance to be able to manage. A quarter of a million dollars. A quarter of a million dollars versus 500 and the like stress and anxiety that's on both, you know, the, the student who doesn't owe as much. So I would encourage you to read this article. Lots of really good data. At the end, they talk about um, some questions presidents should be asking about students' finances, things like how much. Uh, how much in student loans do we disperse this academic year? What's the average student loan debt for graduates? And then what are we doing to help students be successful to strengthen financial skills? You know, last week we talked about uh, having your president teach a first year seminar yeah. class. What a, that Not only is that a great idea, but to actually have a day where you talk about financial literacy. Yeah. That would be eye-opening for that president. Absolutely. I really like they highlight this um, program at Texas Tech that's called Red to Black Peer Financial Coaching. They have like they actually have a whole department where students can sign up for financial coaching. It's coming from individual sessions by peer um, peers who are leading the, the sessions. Um, and what they said is really helpful is that students are learning about money matters through someone who is likely to have a similar financial situation. So they're training students, but they're also saying like $500 makes me panic. Me too. I want to learn from you versus $250,000 doesn't make me panic. Me neither. You have a big problem, <laughs> but the point remains, right? Yeah. Okay. That's good. <clears throat> so I love that building that into our, uh, how we're supporting students in that financial wellness. Okay, then we have a huge controversy in higher education, which I find a little entertaining. You love that. I do love a good controversy. So on the 24th, no, on the 15th, there a report came out that 30% of colleges failed to provide a strong ROI after 10 years. So um, you guys should look up this article. It's coming out of the University of Business, um, uh, universityofbusiness.com. They're talking about Georgetown University Center on Education, who just created a new ROI tool. So you can go in and look and see the value of your education, um, both rank and amount over five years, 10 years, 15 years, and then 40 years, right? So if you get this college education, what is the value based on things like your salary and those sorts of things? So it's but, really interesting. But it's really comparing the difference between if you had just been a high school, if high school was your highest earned degree yeah. compared to being a college graduate, what the difference is in, in salary. For right? sure. So a couple of um, really interesting things on this. First of all, so much of it, if you look at the top 100 highest ROIs over 40 years long-term, so much of it is about major, right? Schools that are specializing in technology and healthcare majors, things like engineering and IT, those sorts of things, they have a much longer, a, a much better uh, ROI over the years. Um, so that's really interesting if you think about some smaller schools who are, like I think about the Bible colleges we serve, right? It's just a totally different metric because those are going to be pastors and ministers. They're not going to be making as much money right. um, coming out of college. So that's interesting. Then somebody got real mad about it. <laughs> And wrote an article called Down with ROI, which basically is like, hey, that's the wrong measurement. Um, nobody who applies to elite institutions or students like this author was at the time, the fortunate people of the world who can afford the cost of tuition without accruing debt. Nobody is talking about ROI for those students. Kind of framing college in terms of ROI. 
ROI is less accessible to other students. So I don't know why he lost his mind. It seems like if we're talking about financial wellness, one thing that you would be wanting to think about is I'm making this investment. What is the outcome going to be, right? No matter who you are, that just makes sense to me. So read them both. Yeah, I don't feel like God is riled up about that as I would appreciate it, but that's fine. Okay, and then our last article, um, we're following the NIL, so name, image, likeness. Matt, you found this one. This is awesome. So this is a lot of universities are creating new courses to guide students through the regulations and help them make good decisions in terms of their personal brands. So for student athletes now with with the opportunity for them to uh, be able to earn um, some some money off mm-hmm. of their name, image, and likeness and get some sponsorships. Yeah. So this says it's so exciting because it gives student athletes the same opportunities that regular students had to pursue business ideas and bring their education to something that's really practical. It's something that non-athletes were able to do before, but now it's open to athletes with a whole different platform, right? Right. Um, and this idea that they are thinking through not just in their athletic career, but like moving forward in the world, how are they going to brand themselves? Your reputation and what you stand for and what you say and what you post is really, really important to consider. And so they're, um, thinking through like, what do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need? And where can you make money? And saying, we want to focus on that piece and then really use your reputation to do good things. So they were like raising money for um, homelessness and and food insecurity by using that uh, NIL. So I just think it would be such a fun class to teach, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think it's great. And that is the State of the Union. Yeah, thank you. Those were good ones today. Um, Okay, so I'm super excited to introduce to you our Director of Operations for Ferris Resources. This is our um, Ferris Spotlight. And the reason that we're taking a little bit of time out of our um, theme of change, although we will definitely address that some today, is because I was talking with our team at Ferris the other day about how we create our technology and how we do our consulting and how we work with schools and the ideas that we have. And we just made a quick list of all of the places in higher education that our team has worked in. So almost everybody has had some position in higher education. Um, Here's what is represented on our team. The Registrar, Career Exploration and Readiness, Advising, Res Life, Human Resources, The Bookstore, IT and Technology, Faculty, TAs, Academic Recovery, Care Team, Early Alert, Counseling, Coaching, Financial Aid, First Year Experience, Student Leaders, and Special Programs. Isn't that amazing? We have a great team. We have a great team. And so I was saying, I would love to introduce to our listeners all of the expertise that that we bring when we're trying to create new programs, when we're, like I said, consulting, when we're building technology. And so Brayden Owens, who's going to join us right now, um, drew the short stick. And I said, (laughs) you have to be the first one to come and join me. And she was like, okay, I'll do it. So hi, good to see you. Hi, that was a really kind way to explain what I said to you because I didn't really <laughs> say, okay, I'll do it. She did not. She said, I cannot think of a worse thing that you would ask me to do. I'll do it, but I'm not happy with you. And I was like, I, okay, I can take it. I can take it. <laughs> so the other thing that I want to say as we're moving into, I just want to talk about the the path of the career that you've had. Um, I'm super happy that Matt has joined us because you and he have worked together for many, many years. In fact, he kind of was instrumental to getting you to ACU, which is where you did a lot of work in higher education. But also I was thinking about not just the positions that we've held on our team, but also the student perspective that we represent. So on our team, we have non-traditional students. We had at-risk students. That's me. Um, We have transfer students. We have first-generation students. We have student athletes. And so we're always sort of wearing all of the hats to be like, what do these offices need to do? But also, what is a student's experience and how can we make sure that we're supporting them um, in our connect and solve and not just being like, hey, good luck with that. Hope, you know, it all goes well for you. So I want to explore that a little bit. Um, and especially as we're thinking about change. So, so much of your time at the, your institution was in the registrar's office. And so it's kind of a funny thing to talk about registrars and change because those things are 
don't always go hand in hand. So I want us to think about innovation in the registrar's office um, as we're thinking about some of this change. So Braden, my first question is, can you help us understand both your career path into higher education um, and then after that kind of through like all of the things that you've done in, in higher education. So let's talk about first, how did you get into higher education to start? Well, I was talking earlier about how I, even I had forgotten that I actually began working in higher ed when I was an undergraduate student as a first gen student. I was also uh, an emancipated minor. So I was completely on my own and knew nothing. And I started as a student worker in the financial aid office. And even at that time, as a 17-year-old, it became really clear to me that knowledge is power in some of the offices at an institution. And um, if you don't know what a financial aid office does and you don't know how to not navigate their processes, how that could affect a student, and in particular, a first-gen student like me. Um, so that was kind of something I took away from that experience. Okay, can I say something about what you just said? Because I love it. I think if we just adopt the truth that knowledge is power in higher education in a lot of different ways, but as we're thinking at our most at-risk students, like the things that you know we've talked before about, like the language and the processes and the who you know, who's in charge of what and who's if we just adopt that knowledge is a power then one of the ways that we make our education system more equitable is we work on making sure everybody has the information that they need in order to make good decisions and know what the heck we're talking about, right? So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so you were working in financial aid to start. Yes, and then I graduated and I moved on to a career in recruiting and many years later needed to return to my hometown for family reasons. And I don't know how I heard about the opportunity, but I applied for a job in what was then the Office of Career and Academic Development. And Matt was the hiring manager for that position. So can you talk about, first of all, what that office was? Because it's pretty unique. I'm super happy you're joining me because I don't ever get to interview you about things that you know about. So this is good too. Yeah. So what is double the, interview the Office of Career <clears throat> and Academic Development? And then what, what was it about Braden where you were like, yes? Oh, well, okay. So OCAD was new, and, and I think it was, at the time, it was like, where do we fit all of these together? How does this make sense? It actually was under the first year experience, the dean of the first year experience, which is really interesting. And it turns out that, that um, it brought together academic development, uh, testing, uh, career, well, career counseling, um, career development, and placement. Um, and like probation, managing probation or conditionally admitted students. So it's just a hodgepodge office. <clears throat> and um, when I started there, we were trying to rebuild the career center into something that was more proactive and, and engaging with alumni and other employers. So that was what, 2003? Yeah. Okay. Um, 2004. So the the powerful thing in all that was, you know, as we're trying to go out and, and grow, I, I had a plan and we built, we kind of built on this plan, but I needed a person. And so we, we uh, posted the job and Braden applied. And the thing that, that stood out to me, and I, I was saying this earlier, <clears throat> we hired Braden because she had that experience of working with employers and what, what employers needed as far as talent. And so, I don't know if you want to say more about that, Braden, your background in just recruiting and placement on for HR. Yeah, so really my favorite part of that career, essentially I worked for clients to hire temporary and full-time employees. And my favorite part about that was learning about the company culture and just getting a really good feel for who would be a good fit. And I loved applying that to my job in OCAD. Yeah, it's really interesting because you hired Braden to build a pipeline, right? <laughs> but so much of what we did in that office is like, hey, student, who are you? Like, I need to spend time with you. I want to connect with you. I want to say, like, if you'll stick close to me for four years, you are going to be in such a great position when you graduate. And so that ability, so much of career stuff is fit. 
right? We just talk all the time about the values and the tasks that are important in your interest and being able to say two different people can love accounting and fit in two completely different places. Right. So you were talking about how Braden well, built the pipeline. Sure. So we started off with less than fewer than 300 employers. And I think in a year, she, she almost got to 3000 employer contacts. And that's that was amazing. really, it was really amazing. And so that that's when I knew Brayden was always great to work with. Also, she always made everything better. I think the, the important thing to remember there is that that's before handshake. So those <laughs> are like, literally like, these are people who are connected to our institution and want to hire our students, right? Yeah. It's not sort of crowdsourced, like, oh, we're posting all these jobs. That's like, these people want to hire people from this institution. So I think that that's really amazing. So Brayden, you started building the pipeline and just, it was employer relations. And then um, I got to join OCAD and then Matt left us both in the dust. And then, um, <laughs> and then your, your, what you were doing changed a little bit from just employer relations to like really career readiness. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we changed our name to the Career Center and we changed our location. And a lot of change happened along with that. And that's right. In addition to networking with alumni and non-alumni employers to make those connections, I became heavily involved in just meeting with students, you know, freshman through senior year to get them prepared to interview, to help them create their cover letters and resumes. And really, like you said, just to get to know them so that when I started to talk to a new employer, I would just, I got to a point where I just off the top of my head knew exactly who they needed to hire. Yeah, that's so awesome. So I wanna pull back for just a second because one of the things that I loved about you and I working together in the Career Center is that there's this great partnership. And I think it's helpful for people to remember that we are always encouraging holistic student support. So I'm on the career side with career exploration. I'm working with students who are still deciding on their major. I'm working with students who aren't sure about their major and need to have it confirmed. I'm working with freshman students. Like I'm working in this very specific piece of what's happening with students. And then Braden's working with them in a really different way, which is like, can you interview? Do you have internships? You know, have, do you have your resume? All of that kind of stuff. Well, We've seen on so many campuses where it's like, I have my work and you have your work. And so we're just going to keep doing that work, but we're not going to think about that in terms of a holistic student picture. And so one of the things that I love that we did was if students had gone through the exploration process and confirmed their major, chosen their major, then you and the student and I would have a meeting where I'd be like, Brayden, this is all the work they've done. This is, they're sure they want to do this thing. These are the kinds of jobs that they're interested in. And then you would take all of that work that they've done and then say, okay, for the next two years, we're going to be building out these things so that you can be really successful. And it's one of the, so in OCAD, it was absolutely true that we had all of these moving pieces where we're always trying to think about how do we support students holistically. But even within an individual office, you can just like get so focused on like, here's the work I have to do. I don't know what happens to them afterwards, right? Um, it's a great model for supporting students, I think, through four years in career. Okay, anything else you guys want to add about that? Well, when I think about Braden's time as we were building OCAD and then the Career Center just how there was just this constant, how do we get better, how, a move toward excellence. We have to innovate because students aren't coming to see us. So how do we go find them? Being really proactive in, in the ways, not only of connecting with employers, but then on the career readiness side. And, and as we, we set up interviews and we have actually a, you know, a great employer coming to campus, how do we find those students? Um, the thing that stands out to me is Braden was um, always, so the, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to do it really well. Yeah. And, and she wasn't afraid of change, of, of making these changes or improvements, innovations, but it had to be great. We have to be excellent in how we do this, right? So I think that that, that was a starting point where I, I want to, I don't really know how you ended up in the registrar's office, but having that mentality then uh, doesn't lend itself as well in the registrar's office. So I don't want to jump ahead, but yeah. I do think that that's an important piece to it, that it was constant innovation, improvement. We had a goal in a place we wanted to go, but you're like, hey, we're not just going to 
we have to be excellent in how we do it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, well, it's funny you said that, Matt. Um, I was just thinking last night about how I did make that change from the career center to the registrar's office. And after several years in the career center, multiple people came to me and said, I think that you belong in the registrar's office. I think you would do a great job there and you'd be a good fit. And I was mad every single time <laughs> because what's, what do we think of traditionally in regard to registrar's office? No innovation, lots of red tape, always looking for a reason to say no to every question. And I was offended. That is not <laughs> me. You don't know me because that's not me. Yeah. And I later figured out what they meant is exactly what you were saying, Matt. Like, okay, let's send you there so that you can take the traditional registrar's office and be innovative and make it a better experience for students. So when I got that, I was like, okay. <laughs> you want me to come in and make it better. I can totally do that. I mean, it, and that's how it fits in our overall theme of change is, is like not from this, um, secure threat focus, but opportunity yeah. focus. How do we make things better? And Braden's always the right person. Which that's such a good point because so often I feel like the registrar's office is totally operating from a threat perspective, right? Like we are the keepers of all of the most important things and we can't budge because if we do, then it's going to be, you know, a slippery slope and what's going to happen. Any exceptions and we're, yeah. Absolutely. So can you... I mean, I, in defense of the registrar's office, those things are true. And can you talk about the, the position of like, I do have standards and policies and procedures that I have to defend, but then also where are the places where you were like, Hey, but we can be innovative here, or we can do this better. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and like you said, in defense of all the registrars out there, a lot of it has to do with leadership at the institution, right? Yeah. At some institutions, the registrar's office is expected to hold the line and just be a paperwork processing office, and they are given zero freedom to work outside of that model, so it really does depend on where they are. Um, I was lucky enough to be at an institution where the office of the registrar was highly respected in regard to the registrar was actually involved in all the academic councils. So was not a voting member, but was present and could speak into as decisions were being made. This is how that would affect a student. This is how that would affect our technology. And so a lot of the things I was able to do is because of the, the model at our institution. Um, so Brayden, that's so know, interesting because I also think I mean, I, I'm curious how that evolved because it definitely is a thing that that depending on how your registrar is on your campus, we should be respectful of the fact that they know the answers to all of those questions. So if you're going to change a degree plan or you're going to add one or you're going to remove a class or you're going to whatever, we absolutely should have the registrar in the room. And either the registrar has to have a perspective of like, I need to go to the places where I need to be. Can I please come to these meetings? Or for our listeners who are not the registrars to say, oh, that's a that's a place of expertise that I need to make sure that I'm including. I was thinking about with change where we're talking about like you need to have urgency, but also you have to have the right coalition on your team. to be able to say these people have thought it through. And we have this all the time in implementation where we're talking about data and who should have access to data. And we're like, go talk to your registrar because they know who is able to see what academic pieces and what can faculty already see. And let's just start there and, and rely on their expertise. So I love that idea of like, hey, there are places I need to be to have my voice heard so that we can protect our students and make sure they're getting what they need. It's really good. Um, and yeah. going back to knowledge is power, the registrar's office knows so much about every single student and other offices on campus. So it's so important for other offices to realize that and know how helpful a registrar could be, again, depending on the structure of the institution. Um, because if you have a question about a student or a group of students or the last 50 years worth of data <laughs> about what has happened in a particular professor's class, that's where you're gonna go to get that information. And so um, for other offices to understand that they can be a resource beyond just 
saying no to academic exceptions. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> so there's two pieces of that that are really, I think, worth exploring even more. One of them is thinking about early alert and academic recovery and those like very grade specific issues that we're trying to figure out, having the registrar on those early alert teams to be able to give you some of that insight, I think would be so helpful because, you know, you and I were talking about academic recovery and I was like, help me understand all of the implications. And you're like, okay, well, if a student fails a class and we don't offer it again until the, you know, even spring semester, that's a thing we have to consider. And if they fail a class and it changes their financial aid or like they're weighted differently, or it's a major class, like all of that conversation, which registrar stars hold that knowledge to be able to make sure that you're not making bad decisions. I think get them on the team. Right. But then also, um, thinking through, we talk a lot about financial aid counselors and how if financial aid counselors think that they're solving without connecting. So we just have to solve that you need more money, or you've got to fill out your FAFSA, or you've got to pay your bill, or you've got to take out another loan. You're missing this piece, which is like, hey, is everything okay with you? And financial aid counselors so often know because you're talking about something really vulnerable, which is I don't have money or, you know, my dad's lost his job or whatever. And so reframing that job in terms of make sure that you see your student first. And if they're struggling with something that you kind of have these connections to be able to lead them through. But the registrar is similar. I mean, I imagine you have a lot of stories of students who came in to do a transaction with you, but because you were paying attention, you're like, hey, what's happening here? Do do any of those stories come to mind? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I worked with so many students, it's hard to come up with a individual story, but that happened all the time. I mean, we're usually the first ones to know if a student hasn't been going to class, believe it or not, because questions about midterm grades come up. Hey, what do I put in for this student? I've never met them. Well, would have been nice if we had known that three weeks ago. But um, a lot of times, registrar is the first one to know those kinds of things. Um, and, and also, it's kind of reflecting back on something you said earlier. Um, I think that it's important for the registrar's office to be known as a place where problems can be solved. So um, if they get the student or the problem to the registrar, registrar's office early enough. And the only way that someone on campus is going to know to do that is if you have a relationship with someone in that office, right? So I, I remember a situation where we had students finding out of, about a particular policy too late for them, and it, and it ended up with a lot of failing grades and that kind of thing. Um, and I just created a team of offices across campus, financial aid, student life, the advising team would come and we would meet regularly. Just honestly, what we found out about that is all of our processes were disjointed. We were all trying to solve some of the same problems, but we were not doing it collectively. And um, no one's gonna step up. It's not like the president or the provost office is gonna say, hey, we need to create a team, right? Someone in one of those offices needs to realize that that group needs to exist, that team needs to exist and take the initiative to do that. And really, as we started having those meetings, those offices really started trusting us because again, we had the reputation of looking for a reason to say no to any time someone needed help. And when they saw that we really wanted to um, prevent problems from occurring and we really wanted to be a support to the student, they started trusting us. And I would sometimes be the very first person they would call. An advisor would call me and say, I'm about to meet with a student. I think this is what's going on. Before I meet with them, what are all the options? Yeah. And a lot of times I knew about options that were available in the catalog. That's kind of something else I wanted to say that a lot of institutions will say, that's our contract with the student, the catalog. I'm sorry, who reads the catalog? Yeah, um, <laughs> right, right. Especially now that it's a PDF online. And yeah, like- right. I mean, I know students are supposed to sign something in the handbook saying, yes, I read the catalog, whatever, right? But many times, even as a registrar's office, we would review the catalog every year and say to ourselves, oh, we forgot that was in there. That should have come out five years ago, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so just becoming an expert, as everyone in a registrar's office should be, of every word that's 
in the catalog that would affect a student's experience in a way that you're still adhering to academic policy, you're still fulfilling um, what the academic deans had in mind when they created a certain class or a certain degree plan, but you can solve a problem for a student or maybe you can't fix it now, but you have a solution for them down the road where they can still stay on track for graduation. Yeah, that's such a good example of we're always talking to schools about you are an expert in this thing. You are the expert. Your first generation freshmen have never done this before, right? You're, I mean, even students who come from, from parents, I mean, my parents didn't, they went to college. They had no idea how to help me with any of this kind of stuff, right? Right. I mean, our, whatever. So thinking about how do we apply our expertise and, and accept the fact that if I'm an advisor or I'm the registrar or I'm in res life or I'm in academic support or early alert, what I have to be saying to students is it's your consistency, right? And, and hey, stick with me. I'm good at what I do. I know what I'm doing. And my goal is for us to have a good outcome for you. We are on the same team. And that language, I think, is so important in every office. I love it applied to the registrar to be able to say, this is our contract with you. I've read it. I know every word of it. And the advantage to you is these things are built in there that are going to be able to help you. That's awesome. Do you have more to say about that? Well, I really hope for for everyone listening, if you think about your registrar's office, are the people working there, are they able to give that assurance? Yeah. And and one thing that I love, I mean, I just, you coming in with students in the center of the work. Yeah, we have these, but here's the why. You were telling me the other day about, you know, it's always frustrating when you have someone who who complains about a student, right? So the, the student who changes their major multiple times, and it's frustrating because I have to keep, you know, I've changed that student's major the fourth time now. Well, that student needs your help, right? They're, what's going on? They don't have a vision for how they fit academically here in a, in a program here. So we could complain about it or we can help them. Yeah, which is about seeing them, which is about saying like, hey, so you're changing your major for the second time. Did you, were you in our program that will help you confirm that this is the right choice for you? Because I know that this can be super overwhelming and frustrating. So here's the right person. Let's go see them. And, and But it's a totally different perspective than record keeping. I'm just supposed to write down, you've changed this for the fourth time versus the idea of like, it's a person in front of you in a community where we say, we see you and we're on your team how is it that you just let them do that for the fourth time without addressing it? Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it goes back to, we've talked about this many times about how institutions don't necessarily want to see students as their customer, so to speak, but they are. And so for many times in my office, I just had to communicate that to my staff. Have you had a terrible customer service experience? Tell me about it. And they ranted and raved. And I said, do you, is that this kind of experience that, you want our students to have because they are our customers. Yeah. And that's really just how I saw everything that that we did. And, and I'll just tell you, it, it changed for me too when my son became one of our students. And I just thought, oh, well, this is going to be easy for, for him. I work in the registrar's office. I'll just tell him everything. I've re- I know the catalog, so <laughs> whatever. Well, he got himself in a position where he signed up for a class for during the summer and he was traveling and he forgot to think about if he was gonna have internet access. Well, he didn't and he didn't know what to do about it. And then he waited too long and then he filled the class. I'm in the registrar's <laughs> office. You're like, you should have asked me. <laughs> Hello, I could have told you in the deadline, but that just goes back to students. That's not what they're thinking about. They're, they're there to develop and to learn and these, deadlines that we have, even if they're in the catalog, wherever they are, they're not in front of mind. And we just have to give grace when we can. And again, treat them like we would treat them if they were a customer, if we were in a retail business. Here's what, here's what I really love about that, Brayden. So, so one faculty always push back on they're they're not customers, they're students. Well, okay. In the classroom, but for every other service, 
they are paying for that service, right? So whether that's from the career center or for advisors to be awesome advisors, the way that you treat them in the registrar's office, you know, name it, the bookstore, name it. They are, they are customers. But what you were saying there, the idea of upstream thinking, right. if you if you take, we know, so my son ran into this, or or what are some of these things that keep coming up as issues? Can we just sit down and, and look upstream, talk about well, how do we remove those barriers for all for the least of these students, for the first generation student, for the student who um, is low income, for the student who has changed their major four times, or the student who's registered for a summer class? Can we just take time to think upstream of what these students need? And the registrar, to your point of the whole thing, they know they have so much knowledge of. They may not even, it may not be an issue in, in the registrar's office or a catalog issue, but it is a, maybe this advisor tends to overlook this thing. And we know that. Yeah. Um, that was hypothetical. I, you guys, I mean, you guys did um, have a meeting with advis adv advisors once a yeah. month, right? Well, we went to, we shifted to a model where we were meeting with the leadership in the advising office, which really worked out really well. And it was weekly. And I mean, that, that interaction along with honestly, every other interaction I had across, across campus just uh, proved to me, most of us are trying to do our job well. Most of us are trying to serve students, right? We are all on the same team. And so when we would bring up things like to your point that we first we saw coming, oh, the deadline to withdraw is coming up. We can't just assume all students understand what that means for them. Let's as a team solve that. Or even to your point, this advisor forgets to do this all the time. Just the ability to have those conversations, to know that it's happening and have those conversations and know we're all, most of us are trying to do the right thing here. Yeah. Um, let's make it about the student and not about inner office politics. I never really had a problem in getting those solved. I think it is a historical luxury that offices were only allowed to worry about the thing they were in charge of instead of worry about students, right? I think it's like when our parents went to college, that's kind of how it was. Like, I don't have to be... I don't have to see you as a whole person. You just have to pay your bill. I don't have to see you as a whole person. You just have to drop your class, right? And I think we are at a place now where seeing students as whole people and understanding their experience and being really honest about the frustration that we have in, in, like you said, like what are the customer service frustrations that you have and how could those be addressed differently? Because sorry, I'm not an expert in the DMV. So I know you guys do this all day, every day, but when I come and I have the wrong thing or the form or whatever, it would have been nice people who have expertise to make sure that I have that information before I go through that process, right? So I love that that's not that's or, yeah. what. Or just ask Braden, she'd know. Yeah, so I love the idea of being able to, able to leverage the expertise around a whole student to be able to, to make those um, decisions. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said about this committee of like, hey, we need to all come together. One of the things that Matt and I talk about so much in upstream pro uh, upstream thinking is those barrier processes. And we talk about one way that you identify the places that you can solve a problem upstream is you either ask students about their experience. So we are thinking like about academic recovery or academic probation which I've said to you before, Matt, Matt and I have mapped that for a school where it's like 20 things the student has to do before they can even start the semester and they're on academic probation. The likelihood they're going to achieve those 20 things when they already have success at is infinitesimal, right? Like there's no way they're going to be able to accomplish those things. <laughs> right. Um, so asking them, what is that process like for you? What is it like to go through? And you've got to go to seven different offices. So we talk about that one. We talk about um, just first day ready. So we've been talking a lot about like on the first day of classes, what do you have to accomplish? How, 
have had accomplished in order to be fully present and able to focus on your studies. So thinking about you have your books, your bill is paid, you have all of your schedule, you have like all of the things so that there's not this kind of, you know, thing hanging over your head. Um, so ask your students about that. But I also love the idea of like walking it. Hey, walk that process. Pretend like you have to do this thing. How many different offices do you have to go to? And does everybody know where to send you to the next thing? Who And are they in charge of that? Because that's a thing that we see so often is like, oh, now you have to go to Brayden because she's in charge of this. And a student gets there and you're like, I'm not in charge of that. That's so-and-so, right? Well, seven times a day, I just sent a student to you for the wrong thing. So even getting everybody in a room and saying, hey, you guys all have a piece of this process. We're going to get in the room. We're going to talk about what you're in charge of. And then we're going to have this conversation about how we streamline this from a student perspective instead of a, everybody has their thing they have to solve. So good luck with that. Like, it's super tricky, right? I love that yeah. idea. Awesome. I was just thinking when you're saying that, I, I one of my biggest pet peeves is um, asking someone for information that you already have. Yeah. So, for example, so many times we email students, ask them a question, which we have that information. One of the things that drove me nuts in the British Shores office when I first started working there is that we would just expect students to apply to graduate. They have to fill out this form saying, I'm gonna graduate. I'm sorry, we know how many hours they've completed. We yeah. can make an assumption they're about to graduate. <laughs> how about we run a report, find those students, and send them an email and say, here are the things you need to do. Here are the things you need to think about. And also at the same time, the financial aid office is also sending them an email. We think you might be ready to graduate. You have to fill out this form and this form and this form. And then students' life is like, you owe us such and such fee. Are you gonna graduate? You gotta pay before you graduate. Well, hey, let's not do that. Kind of a major part of the business. This has been the goal but for four years. <laughs> are we just trying to trick them? Yeah. Well, it's great because it goes back to our student success funnel, which is like, hey, first of all, find them. Don't wait till they wander in. Don't wait till they say like, oh my goodness, I need help. What's happening? Because you have the expertise to be able to identify them and then say, we've designed this process that's going to be not a barrier, not eight different offices you have to organize. Here's the checklist. This is all of the different offices and what they need. When you complete these things, you're in good shape. So I think that's such a good example. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting because we also in upstream thinking talk about designing a, a system and a process like that and how important it is to be able to have the right information, to have walked it, to talk to the people, to map it, right? But then also to, to pilot it because you, there are going to be unforeseen circumstances. Um, we talk about the cobra effect, which you remember is like the, in India, there were cobras everywhere and they kept biting people and they're like, what are we going to do? I know we'll pay people to capture the cobras and then we'll eradicate them. And the cobra effect says there are going to be unforeseen consequences anytime you manipulate a system. In this case, people started breeding cobras because they were like, I got 50 cobras. I can, yeah, I'm not catching them. So then it actually got way worse. There were cobras now everywhere because people had them in their houses. So thinking about designing a system where you say, we're going to pilot it. We're going to see what those consequences are. We're going to see the places where we didn't, we did have this thing that we couldn't have seen coming. And then how we can be very careful to either walk that back or make those adjustments once it becomes clear, like, Ooh, we, that was a mistake. Um, right. I was and then who, and who, what do you need in order to do that? You need to have already established good relationships with offices across campus in order to do a pilot or a test scenario. Yeah. I was just thinking about a school we worked with, or we talked to where they had their freshmen register in July. Yeah. No. Was it freshmen? No, it was sophomores. No. It was all of, their, all of their students didn't register until July. And we were like, Hey, we need a better process for that. The way that you, I mean, you're going to have to design a thing where you, while they're on campus, are getting them registered, getting them meeting with advisors, but that's a huge change. And you're going to make mistakes when you design that process. You have to make sure that you have these relationships to be able to say, we're going to do a small pilot. and then we're going to so, the, it. so the driver of that, Braden, was they had, they had a lot of adjunct faculty and they weren't even sure 
who they would have for which class, what time that adjunct faculty would be able to offer it. And so they weren't student centric, they were faculty centric and, and their process was, was designed around, well, this what is- What faculty need. Yeah, yeah. well, could we get ahead of that a little bit? Because when you wait until students are off campus to register them, we're not gonna retain as high. Yeah, for sure. Braden, anything else you wanna tell us? Any other examples come to mind or action, kind of action items or ideas that you wanna share? I think the only thing that we haven't talked about, I mean, we talked about cross-campus partnerships, but one partnership in particular that stands out to me from a registrar's perspective is the technology team, the IT team at the school, right? Yeah. And, and I think that more so with the registrar's office and then in some other offices, it's so important to have a tight relationship with them because of your SIS and whatever you're using for degree planning and whatever other software, you know, we had several where I was. Yeah. Um, and the importance of making them a part of your team, not just a cross campus relationship, but they're a part of your team. You, they support you in the decisions you make. And you know that when you add software or what have you, they've got your back and they're gonna help. Yeah. That's such an important piece as we're thinking about student-centric to say like, hey, the business of our university is absolutely tied into the registrar's office and we cannot just be like, okay, sorry that we don't, our technology is down or it's not going to work that way for us or it's going to be six months before we have capacity to serve you, right? You were talking about technology earlier too, just how important that was. Well, just thinking about, so the registrar being a key part of, we think about implementing uh, like Ferris on a campus because you have such a great relationship with technology and they're, they're, the tech team is always going to be supportive of what the registrar says. So building that coalition, mm -hmm. we want to have, you know, this opportunity change. We have, at the end of the day, we have to have the registrar on board, right? Uh, because they have such great relationships. But also when I just think about how you can use technology to build all of those partners, you know, to be more effective and connecting everybody. It's, um, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. So go ahead. No, I'm moving to action items. So right. what else do you have? Nope. Well, so, I mean, related to action items, just the role of the registrar in change. That's really powerful. Um, look at, is the registrar's office student centric? we've talked a lot about that. Yeah. So I want to go back to what you just said about the role of the registrar, because I, I suspect that there is a, everybody on campus knows the role of the registrar and then what the registrar might say. <laughs> right. right. And so as we're thinking about partnerships, just go meet with your registrar and say, help me understand what your job is, how you approach your job. Are there things I'm, I'm thinking about so many times where someone just needs to be invited into student success and support because they maybe have had their job framed as you're supposed to be solving all these problems and doing on data, 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 and saying like, hey, would you be interested in being part of our student success and support team? We've done that on campuses before where they're like, yes, I feel like I should be because I'm really connected to students, but no one's ever asked me before. No one's ever given me that opportunity. So I think going to your registrar's office and just saying, what do you think you do? And would you like to be invited into this process of student support? Because you have so many pieces of the puzzle that are going to be really helpful for us. So I love that. So what else that. do you have? Well, just thinking through the, the <clears throat> role of the registrar and helping you with first day ready. So they have all of this knowledge about what a student needs to be first day ready. Yeah. Um, so learning about that, but then also maybe you can help the registrar in being last day graduated. So <laughs> what are the, what are the things that the registrar knows? So as you were saying, just about the process of, you know, applying for graduation. I've yeah. been here for four years. Why do I have to apply for graduation? Yeah. You know? Can I not do that the first day? That'd be a great orientation thing. Like I'm applying to graduate from here actually. <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I think that's great. I just think um, I would identify any of those barrier processes like you've talked about, the graduation, first day ready, academic recovery, all of those things, and just say, how do we walk that through the eyes of a student and how do we line it up so that regardless of what office is in charge of what piece, it makes sense for a student to be able to go to one place and check it all off, or we're going to all be in the same place so that you can just, right, this is what we do with first year, 
you're going to just walk through and do all the things that you have to do. So I think those would be great things to get your registrar involved in, in terms of barrier processes. Well, Braden, I just want to thank you because what Braden has brought to the Ferris team is this insight. And you think about all the different roles that she's had in higher ed, then to be on the Ferris team and help us work through, I mean, working through, hey, registrar is very important on onboarding in this process of, of new technology, and they know so much there. Um, but you bring so much expertise to our team, and that then helps all of our schools. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us. Good to spend time with you. Um, we will see you next week, and have a happy Tuesday.